What's up, Story Geeks? Welcome to The Mandalorian Show on the Story Geeks Talk Disney+. Plus. I'm Jay Shear, author of the time travel novel Time Slingers. And with me to dig deeper into this spoiler-filled show covering episode four of The Mandalorian, two Star Wars Story Geeks who both used to be shock troopers, Ashley Pauls. How Hello. are you, Ashley? Good. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, back from Hawaii and ready to podcast. Yes, <laughs> a little jet lag, but excited to talk about Star Wars. <laughs> Perfect. And of course, Victoria Fox. Hello. Happy to be back as well. Yeah, so we're going to dive deep into this episode like we always do. And before I get to the questions we're going to cover, just a couple of details on the show itself for context. Um, this show keeps like digging back into lore in some ways. And so just to kind of capitalize on some of that and give you guys some information... Um, we see Cara Dune for the first time. Cara Dune is identified as a former shock trooper. So for those of you who haven't heard of them, they do appear both in Legends and in Canon. Um, and this is coming from Wikipedia, by the way. Uh, shock troopers were elite specialized troopers in service of the Empire and the Grand Army of the Republic. And it's not totally clear yet because Wikipedia, I think, is still trying to catch up with the fact that they've introduced her as as a shock trooper. But the Rebel Alliance may also have employed some sort of shock trooper as well. So technically speaking, I don't think we know what army she served under. And it sounds like she may have been like a mercenary type of character after she was a shock trooper anyways, right? So Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's a little bit unclear. Hopefully they'll unpack some more of that. But shock troopers are basically like super badass stormtroopers and and some of them could have been fighting on behalf of the rebel alliance it sounds like from what wikipedia was saying so we'll see because i hadn't heard that one before um but yeah let's let's uh dive into these questions here this is all again spoiler warning we're gonna spoiler everything so make sure that you've watched it um so i'll start with you on this one tori on a scale of one to cara dune what would you give this episode of the mandalorian Oh, you know the answer to this question. I've been waiting for Cardoon for so long, and <laughs> I was not disappointed. Um, I love this episode. Straight Cardoon. Um, loved. There was a lot of like world building, uh, new location, um, some familiar species, and um, I really enjoyed kind of delving more into kind of the Mandalorian way as well. So I loved it. Mm, nice. Perfect episode. Okay, there you go. 10 out of 10. Ashley, what do you think? I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. I really enjoyed this one. I think my favorite so far has still been episode 3, which I'm sad that's the episode I had to miss because I was traveling. But I really enjoyed this one. Kind of like what Tori said about expanding the world, adding some new characters, and continually upping the stakes for this series. So each episode just makes me more and more excited to keep watching and seeing where the show is going to go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am probably at an eight out of 10. Um, and that's just because, so, so basically episode three is also my favorite. Um, and then I probably like episode one and then probably this is tied with episode two for me. Um, and mainly because it, it, um, it was a great episode and, and I'm not complaining about it in any way, shape or form. Um, but it did feel like uh, the resetting the planet sort of reset a few other things, which then it felt like I was, I don't know, almost like trying to go, okay, where is this in, in the setting? And are we just going to hop from planet to planet to planet? And like, like the, I like the through line. I like the through line of what is the goal? Where are we going? Like that kind of stuff. So this episode threw me a little bit in that regard. But it was still an amazing episode of television. I was super stoked about it. Um, 
So we finally do get Kara Dune. So my question for you guys, Ashley, I'll start with you this time. Did Kara meet your expectations? Why or why not? Yes, I was really looking forward to her character based on what I'd seen from the trailers and previews and whatnot. And I hadn't done a lot of research into the character before starting the show. I really wanted the show to kind of surprise me and take me to some places I hadn't guessed. So I was looking forward to meeting her and learning more about her. Um, I'm really curious to see what her backstory is. I did some uh, quick Googling and it looks like she's an ex-rebel shock trooper and I feel like I heard somewhere in some interview or something that she left the rebellion so I'm really curious to see you know why she chose to serve and maybe why she's pulled back and why she's so worried about people finding her Mm -hmm. I believe she made some mention of there being a bounty on her so I think there's a lot more to her that we'll be seeing later on in the episodes but I thought it was a great start um loved her uh, fist fight with the Mando I thought that was pretty intense so I think we're going to see a lot more cool stuff from her yeah absolutely what do you think Tori um, she was incredible. Oh, so powerful. I loved seeing she had such sass about her. I really enjoyed her, her little attitude. Um, I also really enjoyed seeing kind of like the contrast between her and Omera, who's the other um, female character that we're introduced mm. to. Um, they're both very strong women, but in like different ways. Um, kind of seeing Omera is kind of more soft and gentle in her strength and Kara is more physical, um, physically strong. Uh, so, yeah. Um, I loved everything about her. I thought she was great. <laughs> and I'm and I'm interested to see where this goes. I agree with um, Ashley kind of seeing um, she did mention kind of leaving after it ended up being not what she signed up for being, you know, with the rebels. And so I do kind of want to see more about that story. I feel like there might be more of that story there. Yeah. So I hope I hope we see her again. I love I love Cardoon. I thought Cardoon was amazing. I thought that she was a great character to kind of team up with the Mandalorian so like you guys I hope we see more of her we're going to talk about that later um but I also really liked and I don't have many questions about her but Omara was amazing too like um in fact I would almost say that um Omara was a more intriguing character in some ways because it's sort of like anytime you get like a badass character you're like well I appreciate that character because they're a badass um and of course we want to see more of their backstory and like whatever's going on with them and that kind of thing but you just kind of accept them at face value is like, okay, this person's going to basically, you know, beat people up, do a really good job of shooting people. I mean, like, it's like, you know, like you, you respect them for their skill. I think that, um, Omara even has some more depth to her character because you're sitting there going like, she's part of this peaceful farm community, but she knows how to shoot a gun, man. Like she's, she is super tough and a mom. And you know what I mean? Like it was, it was, uh, that character is really interesting, and I'm wondering if we're going to see more of that character. So, yeah, Kara um, did meet my expectations for sure. Uh, Gina Carino is a fantastic choice to play the role um, because not only is she uh, a very good actress, but she's a former MMA fighter. So, I mean, like, if you're going to talk about anybody who fits the role and is able to actually – I mean, I'm, I'm positive that uh, that Gina Carino would probably beat Pedro Pascal up in a fight in real life. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> yep. she, yeah. can, she can take most of the people in the show, I think, at this exactly. point. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So that's that's just super cool that they would uh, cast her in that role. So that's awesome. Jumping off of the Omera thing you're talking about, you know, she can, like, shoot a gun really well and stuff like that. I hope we see her again because I kind of feel like there might be more of the story here. Like, I feel like there's a part of her past that we're not fully aware of that, you know, she's just took up the shooting very very easily she's the only one in her village who you know can shoot a gun and i feel like she's very 
uh, quick thinking, very quick on her feet. I was super, it was super cool to see her at the beginning when the attack's happening, her kind of just immediately know what to do and hide. And yeah, I think yeah. I'm excited and hope that there's more of her. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she was awesome. Um, and this is a perfect segue into my next question. So let's talk about Mandalorian mating rituals, <laughs> which I'm just kidding. There's no <laughs> such thing as that in this show, but this episode does give us a potential love connection between Omera and uh, the, who's the widow in this in this episode um, and Mando. So what did you think of that, Tori? Go a little bit deeper with this Omera character and and the, even just like the, the sort of connection she has with the Mandalorian. Yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of chemistry there. Um, I loved it. I thought it kind of softened up Mando even a little bit more, kind of showed mm. a little more of his soft side because I think he does kind of have a soft spot for her. Um, and I think throughout the course of the episode, I think it becomes more apparent through his interactions with her that a relaxed life kind of does appeal to him, even though he does seem pretty reluctant of it. Um, like specifically at the end, you know, she, where she's like, hey, we'd like for you to stay. And he his response is, I would like that. And I, and I kind of feel like and I want to listen to it again. I've listened to it a couple of times. I kind of rewinded and listen to it again uh it kind of seems like his voice almost breaks a little when he says that like mm. there just seems to be mm. some sort of a, a hint of something there when he responds but for whatever reason i feel like he feels like he's maybe undeserving of that or just unable to do that um but yeah i thought like i said she was great and i definitely think that there was they, they definitely have a little something going on i thought so well, I always like to joke that I am a serial shipper. So if there's a hint of a romantic <laughs> connection between characters, I'm going to ship it. So <laughs> I, yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah. So I really liked this and um, I thought their relationship was really interesting. And I think it's again, a testament to the high caliber of acting in that you can't see Pedro Pascal's face and yet you can feel the chemistry. Oh, like yeah. Omera, oh yeah. She is attracted to him. She doesn't know what he's like under that mask, but there's something about him that draws her to him. And then you can see that he is drawn to her as well, even though you don't see his facial expression, you can't see the look in his eyes, but just something about, the way they relate to each other is so interesting. And something else I wondered is maybe if this quiet village reminds um, the Mandalorian of his past. Maybe he grew up in kind of a peaceful community that was all shattered, presumably by the Clone Wars when his parents were killed. And so when he comes to this village, maybe he's reminded a little bit of his old life and he wants to go back to that, but he feels like he's too far gone at this point. Like he doesn't feel like he can fit back into this peaceful life. He can't be the kind of person that he thinks that Omera should spend um, her life with. And I don't know if we'll see her again. I would love to because I think there's just a really interesting chemistry there and it'd be a shame if they didn't play on that further. Mm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. One of the things I found really interesting about this uh, this connection is that um, they introduce. I'm always interested as a storyteller and a writer. I'm always interested. I'm always interested in how uh, as culture shifts, like as as cultures viewpoint of gender roles, for example, shifts, and as it's and as people are more becoming more and more um, desiring of having stronger female characters, it it you can't go back to the same way you used to tell a story back in the day, right? Like you have to tell the story differently. You have to tell a story to, to an audience that is, that cares about very specific things. One of the things I thought they did really well in this episode was that there was virtual, I would say from based on my view of it, like zero love connection between Kara and the Mandalorian, right? Like they're just sort of like, 
buddies who have similar experience. They understand one another. But you didn't get any sense that there was a romantic connection between the two of them. So that when they introduce the romantic connection, it's not like, well, the first female he runs into, now he has a relationship with, which is just so tropey. Um, So I kind of liked the way that they they introduced a potential love connection, which we may never see again, but a potential love connection at the same time they they just previously introduced a um a really important female character so that was kind of cool oh yeah mando and kara are totally bros <laughs> yes <laughs> right 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 exactly. they are they're like best friends already i love it yeah exactly in fact she's the one that's teasing him about it right she's the one that's yeah. like hey why don't you stay around like, oh my gosh yeah like when she said good. that she's like it's so easy for you to just stay like why not just do it yeah exactly so. Exactly. And she I get the feeling that, again, this is this is a level of intimacy of two people who have had similar experiences like they both know, Okay, well, we're both here. We can't both be here because we're both trying to hide from from people. So this is a bad they already know what's going on um, between their own lives. Um, They're trying to escape things. They're trying to get. Uh, deeper into areas of, of peace and comfort or whatever. And so I think it's uh, just really fascinating how that's how that's actually handled. So mm-hmm. and then just to pick up on something that you had mentioned, Ashley, you said that you read a little bit more about her being definitely part of the Rebel Alliance. Do you remember where you read that and like what context that was in? Um, I believe I Googled it and it came up on Wikipedia for her character. It lists her as um, a shock trooper in the Alliance uh, to restore the Republic during the Galactic Civil War. Yes, that's what I saw too, which is why I um, – because I, I, the first thing I did is I looked up shock troopers. And when you look up shock troopers, it doesn't say anything about um, like rebel shock, shock troopers. It only talks about the Empire. And then I also looked up – but then when I looked up her, it did say she had served for the Rebel Alliance. So I'm really curious as to how where they picked up on that, one, and, um, and how that's going to play a role because they're definitely saying – she wasn't one of the evil ones, you know. You're like, okay, yeah, um, yeah. So that's kind of interesting how that how that'll uh, how that'll play out in the end. But yeah, I really enjoyed. Um, I really enjoyed the connections, and you know, they they used a character who's motivated um, for very specific reasons to explain more of the lore surrounding um, the Mandalorians. And so we'll get into that in a minute in regards to them removing their helmets and stuff, but they did it in a way that was not like, we need answers to these questions. Just give them to us. You know, like Mm -hmm. they made it a part of the story, which I thought was really cool. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about, um, the Mandalorians plans. Okay. So when we break down characters, we always want to know what their wants are, what their needs are, what their goals and objectives are. Um, so Ashley, I think it's your turn to start on this one. We know that the Mandalorian's plan for Baby Yoda is to hide him away from on some remote planet. That's why he goes to this planet in the first place. He's kind of just looking to... We think at first he's going to hide out with Baby Yoda, but then it's revealed that he's basically going to take off and leave Baby Yoda there. Um, But he's also realizing that that plan is not going to work because more bounty hunters are showing up uh, and they all have... um, their their beacons that where they're trying to find baby yoda i don't know how that works by the way i don't know how if the beacons are tied to the person's dna or some like there's one installed inside baby yoda but for whatever reason they've got those uh what do they call them by the way i'm forgetting the name fobs of fobs yeah so they got a fob yeah and they're going after baby yoda so ashley starting with you what does the mandalorian want what does the mandalorian need and what are his goals and objectives in your eyes So one of the things that I think is most interesting at the show is that I think we're seeing the Mandalorian's wants and goals evolve as the show progresses. 
I think when he took that job for Baby Yoda, he was just looking for another job, another way to make some credits. And then we saw him, you know, exchange Baby Yoda for um, the Beskar. But then he has guilt later and he goes back and saves Baby Yoda. So I'm not even sure if he knows exactly what he wants or what he's doing now. He just knew that he couldn't leave the child in the hands of these people that were going to harm it. And so now he's on the run. He's trying to figure out what he wants to do. Um, his job as a bounty hunter is compromised now because he obviously violated the terms of the code. And he went back and he basically kidnapped this asset that he had turned over. Mm. So I think he's trying to figure out what he's doing. I think deep down what he needs is a sense of belonging. He lost his parents. Um, that that still pains him. And he's joined the Mandalorians, but maybe he even still is a little bit isolated due to his line of work in bounty hunting. I think that's why he connects with the people in this village in Omera a little bit. And right now I think his goal is just to survive and he's going to try to keep Baby Yoda out of the hands of the Empire or whoever's going to try to get them. But I believe that towards the end of the series, we're going to see him more, that his goal and what he really wants is a family, a means of belonging, and a cause to fight for. So I'm excited mm -hmm. to see him get closer to that, hopefully, as we progress from episode to episode. Um, I agree with a lot of that. I do think that um, there are some things that I think he wants and needs. Like, I think he really wants the baby to be safe. Mm. Um, even if that means that it's not with him, I think he kind of realizes that his life and his path, you know, as he says, you know, it's no life for a kid to be taking him everywhere. Mm. Um, and I think that he kind of needs it, it needs or wants companionship and community. Um, and I think it, like I said, I think it's becoming more apparent that the idea of a simple life does appeal to him in some way, but I think he is still kind of fleshing out and figuring out what he wants and what he actually needs and all of that. Um, but top is definitely keeping the baby safe, obviously, because um, <laughs> everyone should keep that baby safe. Um, I think that the community that Sorgan presented was very appealing to him. Like I said, um, and I think also you're kind of seeing, um, him wanting to keep his Mandalorian identity um, at all costs, which was kind of already touched on in previous episodes. Um, but I do think that maybe a reason why he's not necessarily um, as quick to kind of take the helmet off and settle down and all of that is because he might be abandoning those traditions and he mm. might feel like it's kind of a betrayal of the people that took him in and saved him. Because mm. um, I think at this point it's it's kind of been touched on that he's maybe not a mandalorian that he was just taken in by them yes. um so i think he feels he owes a lot to those people for taking him in um and i think definitely goal objective uh doing right by the kid uh, keeping him out of trouble i think he realizes it's kind of a big thing that he did <laughs> taking the <laughs> taking <laughs> i mean i mean in the sense of you know yeah he doesn't have a career anymore he's kind of never going to work in this town again type my t mentality but aside from that you know he's, he's taken on an entire life form that he's now responsible for and not only that but this is a life form that clearly a lot of people have a lot of stake in so i think his his top objective is taking care of the baby which is sweet yeah <laughs> the so the reason why i asked this question is a lot of times in when you're telling a story when it comes to your characters you want to give them wants want is an external thing that you're trying to achieve 
And then the need is, and you guys were already mentioning this in your answers, but the need is a, an internal an internal need. So like, you know, I want a Lamborghini, but I need to not judge myself based on my outward appearance, right? Like, like those are the two kinds of things. Like we, we put value in external things when really mm -hmm. we need an internal change or an internal mm -hmm. um, adaptation to our mindset. And I think yeah. you guys have hit it right on the head. Like, he seems to want really badly to be respected as an elite Mandalorian. He's building the armor. He's going through the process of saying, like, I can never remove my helmet because if I remove my helmet, I'm kicked out of the tribe, um, kicked out of the clan. They won't accept me anymore. And so it's he, he has this goal in mind of, like, being elite. Um, and, and that goal is an external goal. Like, he's, like, he wants to earn his place in this tribe. But in reality, what he probably really needs, and you guys already mentioned this, is just – intimate relationships um and i think that this episode the reason why i asked this question at this point in time in the in the show is because i think this episode's really capitalizing on the difference between the two where it's saying basically uh omera was telling him you can be a part of our tribe it's a peaceful tribe it's a loving tribe we will be with you and uh and he he basically says like and, and by the way she says too like you don't even have to lose your identity you can keep all your stuff keep all your stuff if trouble comes in like you can take care of it for us um and so i think there's going to be this i'm getting the feeling that there's this internal struggle now that he's going to have of well how much am i going after something and what is it really going to do for me in the end but in between all of that internal external struggle that he's faced with he has a side goal or a side objective and that is protect this baby at all costs and never before has Baby Yoda been this cute in an episode. <laughs> I gotta be honest. I know. Oh my god! <laughs> sipping, sipping on the soup, like just watching the fight happen. That, oh my god! I laughed out loud so many times in this episode. It was precious. Yeah, and, and, and he, he wants to walk on his own. He follows him to the door when he's like, "Hey, stay here." And he follows him. I mean, yep. like it's ridiculous. Oh, by the way, we also know that um, it has been now revealed, based on multiple characters, unless they're wrong, which they could be, but that uh, Baby Yoda is male. So they yeah, I heard he. Yeah, she yeah. said she 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 dropped the he. So I was like, oh, I kind of was hoping it was a girl, but that's okay. It's still I kind of was hoping it was a girl too, actually, because we've seen so much of Yoda and so little of Yaddle that I felt like a, a female baby Yoda yeah. would be more interesting. But I agree. Oh well, I agree. Um, all right, so let's jump into the next question, Tori. I'll start with you on this one. Um, we have a little bit more lore revealed here. The Mandalorians are allowed to remove their helmets only when alone, and once they remove them in front of someone else, they're not allowed to put those helmets back on. So we've talked about this several times, but what do you think that means for the Mandalorian as a character? We predicted kind of like in episode, I think uh, episode one of this show, we predicted, or it was maybe episode two, but we we talked about the fact that would he take off his helmet at some point um are your views on that shifting what is this signaling for the rest of the series um i don't think my views are shifting that much i kind of initially i figured it would take it's gonna and i still do think it's gonna take a lot for him to take it off on his own um but i do think now that we're seeing kind of this internal struggle within him maybe that it is a little bit more likely than i had previously thought Mm. Um, but I do think that if he can help it, he will continue to be the man of mystery behind the helmet. Um, and like I said, I think I think the biggest thing is him at this point kind of wrestling with he has spent a good amount of his life living, you know, this is the way. 
yeah. and um, following those traditions and those rules and breaking out of that would be very difficult because I think that he do, he would see it as kind of a betrayal mm. of his the only family he's ever known and maybe it's not the kind of family that he really wants or needs but it is the family that he's had this whole time that has supported him mm. so I think it's gonna have to be a pretty big thing for him to take it off but who knows maybe someone else will take it off of him yeah, yeah. which I think would be very interesting so absolutely what do you think Ashley yeah, I was kind of curious about uh, the revelation in this episode, especially since we've seen in other Star Wars media, like um, Rebels, where Mandalorians are taking off their helmets a lot and putting them back on. It's not as much of a big deal. So I'm interested to see whether it's something that's more tied to this particular group of Mandalorians um, that is depicted in this TV show, or if maybe there's a change by the time we get to Rebels. I think Rebels, I forget where that takes place in the timeline, but um, I'm just really curious to see kind of how that fits into lore. But mm. I like the idea of this because I think it really just ups the stakes of when he finally does take off his helmet. Like it has got to be a really important moment. It's going to be a big decision for him. Like, why is he going to take it off? Who is he going to take it off in front of? Um, I'm also intrigued about the idea of somebody else, you know, maybe he gets captured and someone else takes that identity from him and then how he will deal with that so i would say i'm still relatively confident that we are going to see him take off the helmet but with the stakes like this i'm guessing it won't be till the last episode mm. or maybe even the last few minutes of the last episode mm. just to yeah. clarify rebels takes place between episodes three and four okay closer to four yeah so but i do think and yeah to your point i thought about it a lot as well i think it i think it's playing into the whole uh um, our secrecy is our survival thing. I think that them having this strict helmet rule is probably because of their current situation and like the purge that they underwent and all of that. I think it's just part of them trying to survive and through that secrecy. So yeah, that's it, kind of what I took from it. But yeah, I think I think that's correct. The, the thing that I'm kind of picking up on with the whole removal of the helmet type thing that seems to me to be some subset or maybe maybe a large portion of Mandalorian culture. But I think when we see the other characters that have sort of abandoned the Mandalorian culture, um, they are just using it because it's great armor. <laughs> so it's mm, kind of like, true. it's kind of like, oh, I have the armor and I'm good to go with the armor because the armor is great armor. But uh, it's not them. It doesn't seem to be them being part of the tribe. So they would not be people that would say like this is the way they'd be like oh no i've chosen another way you know <laughs> like right that's just the mandalorian way of doing it is what i'm assuming but um obviously i'm i'm assuming a lot in that statement um so we'll see we'll see where they take it um yeah i think that you guys are right i don't i think that they are i mean he let's just face it he does remove his helmets in this episode um probably because pedro pascal had to comb his mustache let's face it that's probably what he was doing. And uh, I think that – I think, um, Tori, you're on to something when someone else is going to remove that helmet. And I, here's why I say that. I say that because I think that he needs a wake-up call relative to the value he's putting on the Mandalorian – culture and I, that just occurred to me by the way mm -hmm. like as you were saying that i was like oh my god he needs to real like he, he'll have an identity crisis and he realizes oh like i don't need to rely on this mm -hmm. exactly mm -hmm. right oh my exactly gosh right. yeah 
Yeah. So that's that's my guess. Now they could do it differently. They could do it like he already he already realizes, and then that it's his own action of taking it off that is that is the the catalyst for him. But I don't think so. I think that he's kind of set in his ways too much. So so much so that it's going to cause him identity issues, and that someone else is going to have to remove it for him to kind of you know kick himself into gear to to, to make the right decisions effectively. So, oh, yeah. um, mm-hmm. so we'll see. It's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be good. I mean, I, every episode of this series I think is fantastic. So, uh, I'm just excited to see what happens next. Um, oh, by the way, just really quick, uh, a pickup. I was really shocked by the pickup that, um, and I don't remember which one of you guys said this, but, it, but it was definitely referenced that he's may not be, or probably isn't actually, of Mandalorian descent. That mm-hmm. so that's what I said. That's what I picked. That's what I'm kind of getting at this point. I feel yeah. like there've been enough. Like the way things have been worded have been enough to where, like in the, um, I think it was third episode. Yeah, third episode where he goes to get like a bunch of his armor made after turning in the baby, mm-hmm. um, and the armorer stands up for him when everyone's kind of like, "Hey, man, this is not right for you to use this Beskar that's Imperial, you know, right. market marked on it." Um, and she kind of defends him and says, Hey, like who like to choose this life, to choose this way of life is a big deal. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody would, you know, you don't choose this way of life just all willy nilly. So he like, you know, you should respect him type thing. So I think like that kind of started me down the path of thinking, wow, he might not actually be, he kind of like chose to be, you know? Yeah. And then, yeah, in this episode, him kind of saying the Mandalorians took me in. I feel like that's pretty close to saying I'm not actually a Mandalorian, but who knows? Yeah. Yeah. The only other thing I can think of is maybe he, what he's kind of saying is like, he is of Mandalorian descent, but his parents were not part of the warrior kind of centric Mm. tribe. And the only thing I can think of Mm -hmm. is like, he he would view being taken over as this horrific thing. And Mandalorians need to stick together and need to follow the rules so that they never get taken over again. Um, That's the only thing I can think of that they might be hinting at, but I think it's either one or the other. Yeah. I think that it's a possibility that it's just him kind of maybe being taken in by a different part of the society from which he grew up in. So I agree with that too. It could go either way. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts about that, Ashley? No, I like all those theories, and I really like the idea that um, his parents maybe left kind of the Mandalorian tradition, and they wanted to be peaceful, and then you have, like, the Clone Wars happen, and his way of life is um, thrown apart. And so he thinks, oh, if my parents were, like, practicing Mandalorians, then they could have fought and saved themselves. So now he's trying to kind of, like, protect himself. So I, I think that's a really intriguing idea. I would kind of like to see that. Yeah, definitely. The other thing I, I think we need more information about is um, I want to know when in the timeline. By the way, I'm not an expert time story timeline Star Wars person because there's so many different things in the timeline. Um, but I kind of want to know too. Like, like y- you mentioned, Ashley, that it the when he became a refugee from his family, um, that may have been during the Clone Wars. I wonder if it actually was during the clone because we obviously there's the the battle droid so we're going okay battle droid but technically speaking that could have been an imperial raid um, on a colony using battle droids from the the Galactic Republic technically speaking so I want to know too like I want to have a more definitive um, 
I don't know, point made about when in the timeline he was separated from his family and when that when his village was destroyed, basically. Because um, that, that would tell us a lot of things that we don't technically... I don't think we know the answers to that. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. That, that's, a, that's, that's a good... We didn't see any flashbacks in this episode, ironically. Like, we've seen flashbacks, I think, every single episode except for this one. So they withheld some of the story from us a little bit. We're going to get into a very uh, philosophical discussion with these next two questions. And it's because Mm -hmm. I always find it interesting. So in the opening sequence, we see a uh, group of peaceful farmers terrorized by these grotesque raiders. I can't remember what they call them. I should have looked it up. They're Klaatuinians. Klaatuinians. Tori is always there with the names. It's perfect. <laughs> I love, um, I, I'm like, obs- I just love like the aliens and the creature aspect of it. So I immediately like try. Well, actually, I think my first exposure to it was the subtitles. It did state the name. Mm, um, mm. And then I kind of went further. I looked it up just to kind of see like pronunciation, all of that. And um, they have showed up in like Clone Wars episodes and a couple of other places and backgrounds and stuff. So I had never been like, I guess, consciously aware of the species. So I thought they were pretty cool. And they do look a little different, I would say, than previously. Like, this time they went, like, full. They look like little, like, I think they're really cute. They're like little pit bulls. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Cute's one way of describing them, for sure. (laughs) And I'm aware that most people don't think that they're cute, but I (laughs) thought that they were very cute. That's why your your question, what was was the wording in your question? I don't have it up. Hold on. I just have my notes. But you said something about, like, Instantly recognizing them. Yeah, we'll get to that question in a second. But before we go there, let's take a step back and ask another storytelling question. What about this scenario, peaceful farmers terrorized by grotesque raiders, um, who at the very beginning of the episode, we actually don't see what it is that they have, but whatever it is, is firing giant blaster bolts into the community and destroying buildings. So what about that scenario makes us instantly side with the farmers? Well, I think part of it is that this setup is something that we've seen before. It kind of reminds me of that uh, classic Western trope of you have the lone reluctant gunslinger defending the town from whatever they're facing. And they do a good job like setting up the scene when we first start this episode. You see these peaceful farmers. It's a very quiet community. It's a loving community. People are smiling. You see children running around playing. It just seems it's a very wholesome, safe environment. And then that piece is shattered when these raiders show up. They're bringing violence and death. And we're, we're programmed right away. We see the farmers as these peaceful people, and they're not looking for violence. And then you have this other group that is coming in and bringing conflict and trying to take what is not theirs. So I think it's very universal. We know right away um, which group is good in which group is bad and of course in real life often things are more nuanced but at least in this story they use cues to let us know right away okay the farmers are the good guys we want to root for them Mm, yeah i think it's you know it's seeing the farmers working hard for their their stores of their krill and it's clearly like their property their keep and you know these guys are just coming in and taking it um i think it's it a lot of it relies on kind of how things are presented cinematically you know they're the attackers are presented as pretty scary. Um, they have like it's a lot of like brute force. Um, they you can't like you said you can't tell that it's a ATSC yet, but you can tell they have some massive weapon just chilling behind mm. this tree line, and like it it's definitely looks like an unfair fight, you know. Um, 
And like I said, you know, they're scary looking. I think they're cute, but, you know, <laughs> they're scary looking. I actually got a lot of um, kind of like orc vibes or even like, um, yes. have you ever watched um, The Time Machine? Oh, I haven't watched. The I think it was like an early two thousands movie. Yeah. It like kind of like freaked me out. As I think I watched it in like middle school, maybe kind of freaked me out a little bit. But like those creatures that come, it's it's a very similar like scenario, you know. And so I I definitely I think just definitely like cinematically the way that everything is presented, you're just kind of like, oh, this is horrible. Like you have these people just trying to you know put food on the table. These guys are just coming in and wrecking them, you know. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't have I don't have anything to add to that because you guys covered everything I was going to say too. So I want to continue this line of thinking because we've seen this in fantasy stories. You just referenced the orcs, and these guys look just like the orcs. And whenever we see that on screen, it's like a visual cue for us to go like, "Oh, these guys are the evil guys, right?" And you're like, "Oh, yeah, exactly." So I'm wondering like, why in stories, why in storytelling, do are we better able to? Generally speaking, we break this trope every once in a while, but like we're generally instantly able to recognize evil versus what's good. Why? Why do you think that is, and why do you think that that is not as easy for us to do in real life, Tori? Um, I think to a certain point, it we are kind of at the mercy of whoever is putting the story together. You know, so like visually. Um, you know if it's a book or whatever how it's described um it's kind of singled out for us right i feel like a lot of the choices that are made in the show for the scene are are very intentional um the point of view with you know following omera makes you feel a lot of sympathy for her her daughter the community um so yeah so i think i think a lot of it is just kind of the way it is presented to us um and then uh real life i think it's not as cut and dry i feel like there's a lot of gray areas in real life Mm. so i think it's not as it's not as 100 percent as you would see in (laughs) in fantasy right (laughs) right fantasy just likes to beat us over the head with a with this well exactly and i feel like a lot of times you know things look as they are intended to be perceived as and so i think in real life you don't really have that you know it's kind of hard you know to tell someone might look nice but a yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Ashley, what do you think? What's your take on this? Well, I think you are uh, spot on, Tori. Um, I think that when you're telling a story, the narrative is more tightly controlled. Like, the author can put things however they want. They can make it really black and white. And I think people are drawn to that because in storytelling, sometimes things make more sense than in real life because in real life, the good guys don't always win or the good guys maybe may not even be the good guys. Kind of an example I was thinking of, of I live in the United States and a lot of times we're like, rah, rah, you know, uh, the Americans are always the quote unquote good guys. But we have a lot of dark stuff in our history when you consider like the treatment of Native Americans and slavery and things like that. So. Um, sometimes, yeah, the good guys aren't necessarily the good guys in real life. And that's why we're so drawn to fiction because it can kind of help us process and make things make sense. We're drawn to fictional heroes like Captain America because sometimes they're better than like the real people, famous people we see. So yeah, I I just think it is really fascinating how sometimes fiction seems to make more sense than in real life. Mm. I think our, yeah, I think you guys are both 100% right on this one. And And I, just to add to it, I think that our brains are wired to look for danger and look for help and look for support. We 
have always been uh, humanity has always been a, a very tribal sort of uh, species. Um, and I think that when we do that, we look for things that are dangerous and we look for things that are welcoming and we tr our brains try and parse that information. Um, I think, like you guys both mentioned, in the real world, it's not easy to parse that information, which is why we also have another trope of the best looking person being the most evil person um, when, when we realize what's going on behind the scenes. So we, our storytelling has evolved to not just be orcs versus humans or whatever, but also to see, yeah, some humans, in fact, some of the most beautiful, compelling, uh, engaging humans are actually trying to do us harm. And there's some good stories that are wrapped up in that. I think that one of the things we also tend to hear um, in culture, culture is kind of trying, constantly trying to figure out if there is, if there are universal standards for things. And so you'll hear this thing of like, are there universal standards for beauty, for example, right? And you'll hear some people say, no, absolutely not. There's no such thing. It's like, it's all cultural. It's all embedded in whatever, like that you've been taught. And you hear other people say, oh no, that's not true. Like there, there are specific standards. There are golden ratios and these types of things that, that human beings find appealing or whatever. And I've always found that the truth is kind of, in my opinion, somewhere in the middle. In other words, we do seem to, even if you were to track across the various histories of humans who have created art, all of the evil things tend to kind of look the same. Like, like you know, a dragon doesn't look that different than a uh, an orc in some ways. You know, like there's certain aspects of their of those characters. Maybe it's exaggerated uh, features that on a human face make the human face look mad, right? So they exaggerate those things, and we go, "Oh, that thing is constantly mad." When we see these orcs in this thing, it's like, "Oh, their 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 faces look angry, and they look threatening, and they look." So it's it's this interesting kind of balance of saying like, "Well, we we have." a preconceived notion of what is evil or good based purely on aesthetics. But then we also know that we cannot trust, we cannot judge a book by its cover to use a colloquialism. Um, so I find these things kind of, kind of fascinating and I find the way that storytellers use them fascinating as well, because we're constantly using them. I'm thinking of um, Captain Marvel, right? Where we instantly think that the, uh, that the aliens are bad, but then it turns out that the aliens are not so bad. Spoiler alert for that movie, by the way. Sorry about that. Um, and, uh, and so I think that I think it's really just a fascinating, um, fascinating thing for us to, to think about. Because every time we see a story, why are the storytellers using the trope or why are they breaking the trope? And in this case, I think it's just a timing thing. Like, hey, we've got to show that these people are bad so that we can spend more time with the good people. <laughs> and mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I think you guys hit it on the head where you're saying, like, they're just a normal, like, gathering they're, they're basically fishing, for lack of a better term, um, and in come these people who want to rob them of their stuff, and that's that's bad. So I, I was listening to a, um, a podcast on this idea that, that we have a concept of, of what beauty is. And this is really interesting because I, I found it really interesting. Someone had done research across all cultures uh, in the world as to what the standard for beauty was in terms of a landscape. So this is not in terms of like people's faces and whatnot, but this is rather in terms of um, a landscape. And there were minor differences amongst uh, different cultures, but overridingly, what was chosen as the most beautiful um, landscape was grass covered, gentle rolling hills 
with a tree next to a stream. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Exactly. It's fascinating, right? This is a, I heard this on a TED Talk about someone who had researched the topic. And they're, they're, and I would love to give them credit, and I have no idea. It was on a podcast, and <laughs> I have no idea who it was. But the whole concept was this is a very livable place. So what did we see at the beginning of this show? We saw a place that had lots of little pools. There were forests. It was a very temperate climate. And the idea being that we would feel most safe. If we need to escape the sun, there's the tree. If we need water, there is the water. Um, they may have even mentioned like there is some sort of uh, wildlife that you could see as well so that we, so that the people viewing it could eat as well. So, yeah. um, mm -hmm. you know, I think human beings are generally speaking trying to seek comfort and survival. Mm -hmm. And that is sort of the comfort survival picture, you know? Well, yeah, it's the it's the sanctuary, right? Because that's what they called it. Exactly. So I feel like, yeah, I feel like you explaining the I'm like, yeah, that sounds exactly like a safe place, a sanctuary. Yeah, I, actually, cool. I'm glad you brought that up because we have not been talking about the episode titles, and the episode titles are really interesting. They so are. They really are. Yeah. They're good. Like, the episode three was titled The Sin, and I thought that was really fascinating, yes. too. Yes. We didn't even talk about that last time, so I feel I feel bad as and a there host. Were, there were several sins. Very good. Yeah. We'll remind, we'll remind you next time. We'll yeah, there you, yeah. Go. <laughs> there you go. The we'll title. The Maybe title. we'll do an entire episode just on the titles. Oh, that's kind, <laughs> yes. that's kind of a fun idea, actually. I like that. Yeah, maybe we'll do that. Uh, all right, so moving on, we got this uh, glowing blue milk liquid in the Raider camp. Um, and I, I, I kind of reflected on the show. I've only seen the show once. I'm going to watch it again with my wife later tonight because um, I always watch it in the morning so I don't get spoiled and so that we can do these shows. And then I watch it again with her um, at night. And so I'm wondering, they seem to emphasize that stuff for some reason. And I, and I don't know why they're emphasizing that stuff. What do you think? Does that have any significance to the rest of the series? Or what were they trying to point out with that glowing blue milk, Ashley? Well, I am glad that others are curious about it because I am super curious about it, too. And you're right. It did seem like they focused on it, but yet I wouldn't know why it would be of significance. I picked up on, like, the Raiders were drinking it sitting around the fire. And then you see these big vats of it, and it seemed like Cara Dune was pretty intrigued by it. So... I honestly have no idea, but I feel like it was kind of focused on enough that maybe it could come up again, but I'm not necessarily sure how and what way. Maybe it's something connected to like the ex-imperials or some kind of smuggled good or, but it, it was interesting. I don't have any answers, but I thought it was interesting. <laughs> it was. Yeah. And they, and they were for sure drinking it, right? Yes. Yeah. I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yep. Yeah. I thought so. It was in the mugs. So what do you think, Tori? So... I, and again, maybe I don't know about the value of this or anything. It does seem like it, the lady kind of hyped it up in the bar. Um, I looked into this a little because I was very curious. So the krill um, can be brewed into spotchka, which is what they mention in the um, kind of – I guess he was kind of like in a cantina at the beginning when he orders the broth for the right, child right. and all a real, that. A really nice cantina. <laughs> yeah. So she yeah. yeah. So she mentioned so she mentioned spotchka. So I did look it up, and it does look like the krill is what is brewed to make the spotchka. So I think maybe they just took all of the krill and were making some drinks, making some drink, you know? Nice, nice. That's what I think, and I think the emphasis was, because I was kind of like, wow, they kind of focus on that. I think they were just kind of like, well, you know, we made this really cool thing. Let's yeah. just, like, focus <laughs> on it for a few more seconds because it did look really cool. Yeah. <laughs> yes, so, it did. That's kind of So I think that that's what it is. I, from my internet research, that's what I've gathered, but... 
uh, again, maybe it's something that's super valuable. I'm not quite sure. I feel like we're almost guaranteed to be able to try it in Galaxy's Edge one day. Yep. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Give me a menu update with some spot skull. Yeah. Yep. Because right now you can go. Have you guys been to Galaxy's Edge, either of you? Yes. No, sadly not. Okay. So did you try the blue milk? Tori? Yes. Yeah. I tried you, what both. What did you think of it? I like both. I didn't really have any problem with it. I think I was partially a little, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess tainted in a way. Because like. I was I grew up going to Star Wars weekends at Hollywood Studios, which was oh, like nice. yeah. I cry all the time about it. But anyway, um, <laughs> they had a breakfast that they had done that was like a themed Star Wars breakfast for one of the last years they did it, and um, they had a blue milk there, and it was essentially just like kind of a milkshakey actual milk like blue raspberry kind of deal, oh, okay. and it was really good. This one though I do like because it is you know it's dairy free so at literally anybody most people can have it at that point so I do really like that um, so I I didn't really know what to expect because I had had something different before mm. um, but I loved it I thought they were great and yeah. I actually really like the green people hate hate on the green yeah I am I, I so I've had it just to try it but I would probably never just go go there and order it you know that's um, fair. But I would say that, like, they also sell it with a cookie in Oga's Cantina. It's, they it's like do. A, it's like a slightly different one, mm-hmm. I believe. It's slightly different. But this is, like, perfect Disney, man. They're like, okay, can you, John Favreau, introduce a version of Blue Milk that'll get you drunk so that we can sell an alcoholic <laughs> version <laughs> in Oga's Cantina? Well, yeah, Cantina. and then throw, like, a little gummy krill, like, garnish on the edge of it, you <laughs> right, know? There you exactly. go. Like, I, yeah, this exactly. was made for, yeah. Well, and that's why people, I always laugh because people are always like, oh, they just added this thing because they just want to sell toys. And I'm like, that, like, most of Star Wars is just like, hey, I glued this stuff to this thing and, like, like, it looks really cool, so now we can sell toys. Like, that's all of Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm super for that. I hope there's a menu update. Yeah. I, I, I hope there's a menu update, too. And I think that – I mean, here's the thing, right? When people get uh, – we were talking about this in our um, – the Story Geeks Facebook group that we're all uh, a part of. I don't, know, I don't know if you're in it, Tori, but um, no, a lot of, a lot of us are No, I would like to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go check it, it out. If you look up – anybody listening, if you look up the Story Geeks uh, in Facebook and you look for the group – um mm-hmm. you can you can join but one of the things that they were talking about was um in infinity which is a or maybe it's xfinity one of the two the cable company or communications company uh did a et kind of throwback ad um and it's obviously to to get you aware of the fact that they do their communication services and you're supposed to buy it and people were really upset and i'm like people Disney has been doing this to you from day one. Like, <laughs> it, like we want, we want as emotional creatures who love stories, we want to keep participating in those stories when they're over. And so, of course, we're going to pay money to try and get the feelings back that we experience when we experience those stories. So it's not a bad thing. It's just you have to know you are being manipulated a little bit, and it's oh, not absolutely. necessarily in a bad way. It's kind All of all day, okay. every day. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Oh my god, that EC commercial made me cry so hard. I had like. It took me 10 whole minutes to, like, get okay again after that. <laughs> it was so good. Yeah, it was really good. Have you seen it, Ashley? No, I haven't, but I've been seeing lots of stuff on social media about it, basically, that it's making everybody cry. So Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. It's so well done. It's awesome. It's really well done, and it has to be part of Star Wars canon because the E.T. species appears in the prequels. That's right. So apparently this is a, a, a mini Star Wars story. Okay, so back to Star <laughs> Wars. Back to more Star Wars. Um, okay, first, first of all, I didn't write this question out because I wanted to surprise you guys with it. 
because I didn't oh, know dear. the answer. I should have <laughs> known the answer. I should have known the answer, but I still had to look it up. Do you know what ATST stands for? All terrain. Uh, this is where I got hung up because because all the ATs I think all, maybe all the ATs the first two letters do refer to all terrain. So what's yeah, the, all terrain. Hmm. Yeah. Something transport is that? Oh yeah, you're very close. You're very close. Well, the One S more. is for something. All That's terrain, right. something transport. That's it. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, all terrains. Uh, it is scout. Scout transport. Scout. Oh. Okay, that, okay, that makes sense. Okay, All train, okay. Scout transport. So my oh. question for you, Tori, you're going first on this one. So okay, first of all, gotcha. how dope was that ATSC? That was awesome. Very, very dope. Yeah. And then what made it different from the others that we've seen in the past? So I think this all comes down back to like cinematography and kind of the way that we are um, – made to view these things um I, for me anyway i thought it seemed bigger more menacing mm. kind of a kind of a little bit of a, a more beefed up version than the ones that we had seen you know in the in the original trilogy and stuff like that um i loved the way that the quote-unquote eyes just kind of like the red of the um oh, kind yeah. of like viewing windows were were framed in the in the um forest and i really feel like it was almost shot like kind of like a horror movie once they kind of like pissed the guys off and we're like oh we gotta run now the way that it was shot with them like running through the woods and and the um atsc coming out i'm like it seemed it seemed very horror movie like to me so i thought it was really really cool but yeah i definitely think they they made them look a lot more menacing than previously shown mm. so i really like that big yeah. fan yeah absolutely yeah, I think they did a good job of showing how scary this vehicle would be from the perspective of a person on the ground. Because when I think back to the original trilogy, I mean, you go from the AT-ATs and the Empire Strikes Back, which are huge, impressive, and scary. And then you see the AT-STs in Return of the Jedi. I mean, they're still scary, but you're like, oh, wow, this is a lot smaller than the AT-AT. So it's not as threatening or terrifying but they did a good job i think of like shooting up looking with the camera looking up at the this um new atst and it does look really menacing and you feel like you're one of those people running on the ground and with the power of those blaster bolts that it's shooting out like it would definitely kill you instantly if it hits you so they do I think they really help you see this vehicle from the perspective of the villagers. And I think it's interesting that they also don't show it to you right away, kind of using that horror technique of what you mm -hmm. don't see is scarier than what you do see. So they kind of build it up a little bit like, what is this thing that's shooting out of the forest? And then we see it with the red glowing windows. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I think you're right, Tori. They did bring in a little bit of horror for this one. Yeah, and it's interesting too, isn't it? Because the last time we saw AT, well, that's not true. It, we did see an ATST in uh, Rogue One. But before that, the last time we saw them, they weren't as menacing as this because, I mean, the Ewoks were taking them down. You know? Yeah. Like, um, yeah. But this one, even even the Mandalorian and Cara Dune, who are both super badass, were both like, this is intense. We have to figure out a way to deal with this thing. Um, mm -hmm. So here's here's my fan theory about this, guys. I have, a, I have a specific theory about this as I'm watching this. I'm going, who is piloting this thing? I feel like it is an AI-controlled basically droid droid controlled atsd i did not feel at oh. any point in time like it was being controlled by the raiders it just seemed like it was on its own doing its own thing that uh you know that does kind of make a little bit of sense kind of with it kind of with the with the whole footing scenario and everything yeah exactly like how it was kind of yeah i i can see that and I you never saw like the 
you never saw the pilots looking down like, oh, we don't want to move. You always saw it as if you were the ATST looking down, right? Like it yeah. was never, it was never a sentient creature oriented. It was always this big, bad sort of mechanical thing. So I'm wondering if they're, well, I've, obviously this is complete speculation and they may not have another ATST in the entire show. But I'm wondering if they're kind of indicating that just like in some of the prequel era, when we had uh, ATST like like scout type vehicles that were not piloted by anybody, I'm wondering if this is kind of a similar type of scenario where these were released on certain planets just to keep the peace, but none of the Imperials actually wanted to hang out there or something along those lines. So we'll see. But yeah, I agree with all, everything you guys said. Like it was super menacing. It was way more terrifying than the ones we've seen in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, so. And if I may add, I uh, just kind of, I forgot to kind of mention this, but I feel like Cara Dune also like really hyped it up, you yes. know? Yes. And, like their, their reaction was very like, oh, well, you just got to go. You just got to go, guys. This is too much. But like, yeah, her reaction where she's like, I've seen them take out like entire groups of, sol- of soldiers before. Like, this is not a joke. So I thought that kind of really hyped it up for you as well, pairing with the not seeing it until a little bit later on. So. Yeah, and it was cool, too, because, you know, you've seen them in Return of the Jedi. And in Return of the Jedi, they are – they're menacing because we obviously see them, you know, shoot Ewoks, which is horrific. But at the same time, like, they're also sort of used for comedy. Like, there's the one that's walking on top of the logs and, like, getting all confused and falls over. There's ones that get hit, and hit basically, for lack of a better word, in the head with the two logs coming crushing together. And so they're sort of used, I don't know, humor is too strong of a word, but they're used in slightly comedic ways in the way that they're taken down. This was not used in that way at all. This was like full on, like you guys said, like horror movie, uh, scary thing. So pretty interesting how that was Mm -hmm. shot and done. All right. So final question for you guys, and we'll close it out. We've already hit an hour um, as it is, and the show was only 40 minutes. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> We've had a lot to talk about this time. Uh, I'm proud right. of us. Yeah, we're, we're, we're stoked about this show. So how, how are we supposed to not talk about it? So last question. Do you think that this is the last we've seen of Cara Dune? And if not, how else will she show up in this series, Ashley? I definitely do not think we have seen the last of her. She is just way too cool of a character not to show up again. So I think she's definitely going to be either teaming up with the Mandalorian or crossing paths with him again. Um, Just thinking about where this show is going to go, I think that Baby Yoda is going to continue to be um, at the center of the conflict as the client, whoever, whatever he is is going to be searching for this and maybe he ends up bringing in Kara to kind of help him protect baby Yoda and because he needs some contacts like his old bounty under contacts he's burned those bridges he has the Mandalorians of course still but he's going to need some new allies so I'm super excited to see her again and I definitely think we have not seen the last of her Mm, yeah definitely Tori what do you think yeah, I agree. Um, I think um, her saying at the end when they say goodbye, she says, you know, until our paths cross. I was like, oh, that's absolute foreshadowing. They're totally yep. going to run into each other again. Yeah. So I'm excited to see. I have no idea what capacity. Part of me wants it to be him kind of like looking for her and being like, hey, I need your help, friend. But a part of me also thinks it would just be really fun just for them to somehow run into each other on accident. Um, but I definitely don't think we've seen the last of her. At least I hope not. She's like the coolest character. So that would be a very sad thing if she never showed up again. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. I think uh, you guys are 100% right. She's going to show up again. I think she's going to show up again because I think 
that she's going to show up in the way that Han Solo shows up in A New Hope when he mm, rescues yeah. Luke from Vader at the very end there. Because I think um, what we're going to find is maybe she even has a fob or gets a fob. So she'll know where they are because she's going to know that. Oh, baby I love that. Ooh, yes. Cool. Yeah. yeah. She's just like baby tracking all the time. Exactly. And so I think yeah. she's going to figure out like there's some sort of super enemy that's going to go after them. And she's like, well, I, if I don't intervene in some way, shape or form, they're toast. Um, and then yeah. we'll see, we'll mm-hmm. see what happens. But the, I, you know, I can't wait to see her again. Cause like, like you said, Tori, like you said, Ashley, fantastic character. Definitely want to see more of what, uh, she's going to bring to the table. So any final thoughts on episode four? More please. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I can't wait for the next one. So Tori remind, remind the folks, uh, what you're up to and where they can find you. Yeah. Uh, my Twitter is at Tori Fett. Uh, my Instagram is at Boba Fox. And I uh, make cool stuff from time to time. I'm working on a fun, few fun projects. So, yeah, follow me for that. Yeah, um, you can find me tweeting at JediAsh1 on Twitter. or And I also blog for the Story Geeks and the Earth Station One podcast network. Yeah, we're really appreciative of that, too. Cool. Well, thank you guys for joining me. Well, that's it for today's show. Special thanks to Victoria and Ashley for joining me. Make sure you subscribe to the Story Geeks Talk Disney Plus so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes on The Mandalorian. Subscribe today on your preferred podcast provider. And while you're out there searching for the Story Geeks, make sure you check out the Story Geeks podcast as well. We're doing a Star Wars series over there, and you do not want to miss that. For more information on our Story Geeks Club, the Story Geeks Network, or anything else related to the Story Geeks, visit thestorygeeks.com. Thanks for listening, and as always, question everything in your favorite geek stories and always seek the truth. Special thanks to all the members of the Story Geeks Club. This week, we're celebrating Ray DeLeon for upgrading his contribution amount and joining a new tier in the Story Geeks Club. Thank you, Ray. We appreciate you. You can become part of the Story Geeks Club for only $2 a month. Our friendly neighborhood club members get access to my almost daily journals, which are basically short podcasts that I record almost daily, or sometimes I skip a week, like I did this last week. If you upgrade from $2 a month to $3 a month, you can vote on upcoming show topics, and we occasionally have you join us live. You can join us live as well. At $5 a month, our Guardians of the Solar System tier, you get all of our discussion questions and prompts before each show comes out, and you get to have your name mentioned. We thank you by name, which we really enjoy doing. Our Guardians of the Solar System are... Adam Vargas, Bob Sherfield, Justin Weaver, Mary Baldwin, and Wade Johnson. At $8 a month, the tier we call our Cosmic Heroes, you get to choose an Aftercast topic for every series that we do. Our Cosmic Heroes are Jim Baldwin, Monty Thigpen, Nick Prokop, and brand new Cosmic Hero, Ray DeLeon. And finally, at $19 a month, you get a free t-shirt and you get to join us on an Aftercast every single month. Our one extra special mastermind of multiverse madness is Connie Mo. We appreciate all the members of the Story Geeks Club, even those we haven't mentioned by name. If you'd like to support the show by joining the Story Geeks Club, please head over to thestorygeeks.com.